want us to look at two verses as we talk about He is the Lord Jesus. I'm going to talk about 2 Peter, where Christ is Lord of all, and also the book of Jude, where He is preserver. And 2 Peter, He is Lord of all. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about what does the word Lord mean? When we talk about Jesus being Lord, what is that an indication of? What does that really mean? Well, I'll tell you what it really means. He is owner. He is the boss of you. He to whom a person belongs... That is the definition of Lord. He to whom a person belongs. Owner. He who controls. Master. Good Peter, every time Peter calls the Lord by name, every time he refers to the Lord, Jesus Christ, it's always the Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ the Lord. The whole emphasis in 2 Peter is emphasizing that Jesus Christ is Lord. He, he is in control. His purpose, His will, will be done. He is Lord. One of the interesting things as we go through the Scripture, very few times... Very few times is our Lord simply called Jesus. Very few times. The times that He is called Jesus, He calls Himself Jesus, and He can do that because He is Lord. But it's only His enemies and only demons who basically refer to him by that name. Isn't that interesting? The name Jesus, Jehovah our Savior, is related to his earthly coming and his shame and his death. It's after his resurrection, after his ascension, it is proper to refer to him as the Lord Jesus Christ. And I knew that we were going to be singing, Shine, Jesus, Shine. And so I hesitated. I started to call Brett and say, Brett, not sure about that song, but it does refer to him at the very beginning. It identifies him as Lord. And the song really does spell out the fact that he is Lord and that we owe our very lives to Him. But when you study the Scripture, get a concordance and go through it and look at all the times He is referred to, it is always, almost 99% of the time, either the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, or Lord Christ the Lord. Because that identifies Him in His resurrected 
glorified state, and that is how we, the church, the body of Christ, need dressing, need to worship Him as the Lord. And Peter does such a phenomenal job, especially in 2 Peter, making sure that he is identified over and over and over again as the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord our Savior. Speaking of that, there is a teaching, I think it's a false teaching, but there is a teaching in a lot of churches that refer to lordship salvation, that you're not saved unless you make Jesus Lord of your life. Now, I believe that's heresy because you don't make Jesus anything. He is Lord whether you try to make Him Lord or not. What the Scripture says you must do to be saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But see, there's a tendency that so many churches want you to do something in order to warrant, to merit, to earn your salvation. You've got to do something other than what the Scripture tells us we have to do, and that is to believe the gospel. That's what to do. But you do not make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. Jesus makes... The Lord Jesus makes you something. He makes you a new creation when by faith you trust in Him. You're made a new creation. But you do not make Him anything. He is Lord. Isn't that wonderful to know? Isn't that comforting to know? That He does not rely on you to make Him anything. He is Lord. He is boss. He is owner. He is master. And my question to you this morning, is He your master? Is He the Lord of your life? He is Lord. But by faith, have you trusted Him for that salvation? Folks, we need to realize either heaven awaits or hell awaits. And the decision is yours to make. By faith, do you trust Christ as Savior or do you reject, deny, refuse that gift that God offers to all who believe? Last week, we we learned in 1 Peter that Christ Jesus is shepherd and bishop of our souls. Both first and second Peter are written to the strangers scattered, the elect strangers scattered, or the elect sojourners of the dispersion. Both books are written to those Jewish believers that have been scattered because of the intense persecution by the nation of Israel on the Jews who had believed that Christ was the Messiah. In 1 Peter, he encourages those who had fled for their lives, just like James, and James had told them, and he was written to the scattered tribes, to the 12 tribes scattered, 
to count it joy when you suffer persecution. First Peter tells them not to be surprised when you experience these fiery trials because of the persecution, because of the time in which they were living and serving. In Peter's first epistle, he teaches them how to, he, he teaches them that there is going to be eternal, uh, external opposition, that there's going to be a lot of external opposition, a lot of people who are going to be causing persecution. He reminds them, these Jewish believers who have been dispersed because of the persecution, he reminds them that they are a nation of priests. He reminds them that they're a chosen generation. He reminds them that they are a holy nation. He reminds them that Satan is their adversary, who as a roaring lion is going about seeking whom he may devour. He reminds them, reminds them of all of that. In 2 Peter, he starts reminding the same people that he wrote the first epistle to. He reminds them of the internal opposition that's going to face them. And these two books were written about three or four years apart. Not exactly sure how many, but just a few years apart. But in 2 Peter, he talks about that internal opposition and what he calls damnable heresies. Damnable heresies. Look at 2 Peter 2.1. That's his words, not mine. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destructions. What a stark, stern warning to beware, to beware. We're going to look at Jude in just a second because he does the same thing. He warns them over these false teaching, these heresies that were seducing the believers, heresies like they doubted the virgin birth, Heresies like they doubted the bodily resurrection. Heresies like they doubted the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, those type of heresies were already starting to filter in. Those heresies were already starting to, to, to affect this group of believers. But you know what? The fight over God's Word has always been. Ever since the garden. Or you can go all the way back to the garden. It's been a ploy of the devil all the way back to the garden. Eve made a serious mistake when she added to the Word of God. She knew the word of God, had, God's word had said, Adam, Eve, do not partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when Satan came and doubted God's word or questioned God's word, see, from the very beginning, that's been one of his attacks. It's been his ploy. I'm going I'm to have them question God's word. 
And not only did he cause her to question God's word, he had her add to God's word. She quoted that, thou shalt not eat, nor what? Touch it. God never said they couldn't touch it. See, when you start adding to God's word, it starts watering down the precious word of God, and Satan can then slither in to the churches. As a matter of fact, I appreciate what Howard had to say today about so many churches that are not preaching the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, teaching so many other things that are false. Well, that's been going on since the beginning of the creation. Then Satan's tactic. See, Satan knows if you can get people to doubt the Word of God, then you realize it is a short step away from getting them to deny the Word of God. So they doubt then they deny, and it's such a short step away after you've denied the Word of God to reject the Word of God. Once you've rejected the Word of God, it is just a really small step away from determining that you can establish your own morality and ethics. And folks, that's exactly what the world's done. That's what the world has done. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. See, even the Lord Jesus was warning his people about the effects of false teachers, false doctrine entering in. Let's start with verse 15. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 15, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves, hungry wolves. And you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Hey, and the answer to that is no, no. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. So you can recognize it, right? You can recognize it. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Verse 20, important verse here, folks. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. By their fruits you shall know them. You know what I find interesting here? That it's in the same chapter that the world is going to quote to you time and time and time again. And which verse is that? It's about the only verse that a lost world knows, but boy, do they have this verse down Hat. What verse is it? Verse 1, judge not. Judge not. That's the only verse they know. 
judging. You have no right to judge me. You have no right. It's not what God's Word is saying, Christian. It's not what, that's not what that verse is talking about. And besides, we don't judge. What we do is we point out what God's Word says. It's God's Word that stands in judgment of sin. It's not us that does that. But look what Matthew 7, 1 says. Judge not that you be not judged. For with that judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. So be aware of that. When you stand up and you say, Thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not steal. If you go out and steal, you're going to be judged. But you still need to know you're not to steal. Right? Because of what God's Word teaches us. When, when people say, You can't judge me. How dare you judge me? You know what the appropriate response is? I'm not judging you. I'm just inspecting, I'm inspecting your fruit. Because by their fruits, you shall know them. I'm not judging. I'm fruit inspecting. And your fruit tells me that you are doing sinful, evil things. See, vengeance is mine, saith God. I will my job is not to stand in condemnation of anyone. I'm not going to judge a single person. And hallelujah for that. You wouldn't want me to. But the one who is has every right because he is the perfect one. So anyway, even the Lord Jesus was warning the people, beware of false teachers. Beware of false prophets. That is why I encourage you to keep your nose in the book for you to study, for you to search the Scriptures daily to see if these things be so. You are doing yourself and this congregation and your relationship with the Lord Jesus harm by just believing what I teach you. You really are. You need to study God's Word yourself to see if these things be so. But again, I want to reiterate, you let a world start questioning God's Word, and they did this a long time ago, and doubting God's Word, what a small step, small step to rejecting, rejecting, denying, rejecting, and then coming up with their own moral system. And I got news for you. The very same ones that used to tell us, well, you have no right to judge me, are the ones that are really quick to judge you if you don't jump on their bandwagon and believe what they believe. Matter of fact, they call it racism now. It has nothing to do with race. But you're called all sorts of things if you don't agree with people who used to point a finger and say, don't you dare judge me. If you don't embrace their lifestyle, if you don't embrace their doings, if you don't embrace their decisions, well, they judge you. And their judgment is not kind. 
let me tell you. So anyway, wasn't going get to get off on that, but that's still good preaching, and it's still true. Second Peter. In Second Peter, he addresses a believer's character and their attitude. And he does so in encouraging, encouraging. Look at Second Second Peter, chapter one, verse three. Boy, he does an encouragement to these people who are scattered, who are frightened, whose lives are in danger. They left their homeland. They left Israel. These strangers who are scattered because of the persecution. Verse 3, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Look at verse 5. Beside this giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge. And your knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to your godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity or love. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There he, he starts talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So he begins by telling them what to do. Then in 2 Peter chapter 2, he starts telling them what not to do. Verse 10, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-will, that they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And he goes on and tells them, they're having verse 14, having eyes full of adultery. Oh, and by the way, I am convinced when he talks the word government there, is dominions. The whole context here has to do with higher powers, dominions, angelic powers in heavenly places. And he's warning them, be careful. It's the reason Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God, not against principalities, powers. We don't wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against Holies and powers. There, there is spiritual warfare, and that's what Peter is warning the people here about. But he walk, he he talks to them about having eyes full of adultery, that they cease not from sin, unstable souls, a heart they exercise with covetous practice, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozar, who loved. The wages of unrighteousness. So Peter is, is warning them, don't do what Balaam did. As we're going to see, Jude warns them the same thing. Matter of fact, the book of 2 Peter and, the, and Jude, man, they just almost overlap. What Jude is telling them at, earlier on, about 10 years prior to Peter writing this, is almost the same message the content, the message is nearly the same. The warning to these people who are scattered is don't do what Balaam did. You know what Balaam did? He's the one that the donkey talked to. He's the one that, that uh, was, was hired to curse Israel. 
And every time he went to curse Israel, God wouldn't allow him to curse Israel, but would have to bless them. And so finally, what Balaam did is he, talked, he told King Balak, he said, don't do anything to Israel. Just your people, the world, receive them with open arms and include them. Invite them over for dinner. Just do things, things with them. And you know what? They're going to like your culture. They're going to like your lifestyle. You're going to lead them into sin. And that's exactly what happened. That was the way of Balaam. Was just don't do anything. And before long, they'll come over to your way of thinking. And when they do that, God is going to judgment, judge them. See, that was the way of Balaam. Peter warns the people of going in that direction. So I stand here this morning and I warn you not to go that direction. Jude warns them not to go that direction also. So Peter starts out telling them what to do. He starts and then he tells them what not to do. He tells them, as we saw a while ago, to beware of false teachers. Remember, Peter is obligated to spread the gospel of the kingdom. He agreed to do that back in Acts 15 in Galatians chapter 2. He's responsible to taking the good news of the kingdom to the circumcision. He and James and John and the twelve, that's, they, they were obligated with that message, with the gospel of the circumcision, with his promises. I think it's interesting that when Peter is preaching, writing this letter, and he's telling them to be, beware of false preachers, he's near his time to die. He's in Babylon. What God's Word tells us from 1 Peter, he writes to them from Babylon. He is in Babylon when he dies. Look at 2 Peter chapter, uh, uh, second, uh, uh, no, 2 Peter 2. Verse thir- uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Yea, I think it meet or proper, as long as I am in this tabernacle, or in this body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. He was at the end of his life. And right before 70 A.D., when the temple is destroyed, I think all that's related, but we're not going to get into that, to that today. So he warns about false teachers, but Jude does too. Look at Jude real quick. Look at Jude. Look at Jude chapter 1. Well, verse 1 uh, of 1-1. One, one. Actually, there's only one verse to Jude. So if you're looking for, if I say turn to Jude 2, you know that I've lost it. But Jude, verse 1, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Preserved. What a, what a blessing that is. But look down at verse 4. 
For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude starts out telling them the same thing. Beware of false teachers. But that's not the only thing that he does as he talks about the similarities. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow, follow their evil ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Well, if that doesn't describe today, I don't know what is. The way of evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. In other words, that's what he's talking. They're going to use you for profit. They're going to use you to make money. They're going to use you as a benefit to themselves. Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. In other words, their condemnation is going to occur. It's going to happen. Look what he uses as an example of these type of teachers. And you know what? And you guessed it. Jude does the same thing. He uses pretty much the same example. And he gives us, both of them, some real insight into what happened in Genesis chapter 6. And the demonic warfare that was existing back then and was existing here. 2 Peter Chapter 2, verse 4, saying that those false teachers, they're going to get their just due. How do you know that? Look at verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And you, context is everything here. What? Angels that sinned? When did angels sin? Which angels sinned? What sin? Verse 5 kind of tells you who he's talking about here. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. By the way, that word is heralder, not Moses out evangelizing. Moses was not going out to those people and saying, you better repent, you better get ready, it's going to start raining, you're going to be sorry, you're going to want to get in the ark. That's not, he was a herald of righteousness, he was preaching against what was going on, and what was going on, the sons of God, which were the fallen angels, were coming into the daughters of men. Now the world thinks it's crazy if you believe it, I tell you, that's exactly what was going on. And that's what Peter is bearing out here. And Noah, 
and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Genesis chapter 6 tells us that everything they did, every thought was evil continually. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ash, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that are that after should live ungodly. I need to tell you what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was. Well, I'll do it anyway. It's homosexuality. It was not the sin of, like I heard somebody tell me a while back, it was the sin of inhospitality. You know, that's, that's a joke. And it would be funny if it weren't so serious, if it wasn't so sad. But see, Peter's telling them here, he's making sure they understand that these are damnable acts. And he talks about these angels that sinned and these, well, you say, where do you, how do you get that from that? Well, it's because Jude makes sure that we understand it a little more in detail. Look at Jude chapter 1, because there's only one chapter. See, and Jude's just done the same thing. He's talking about these men that have crept in and they're teaching false doctrines. Verse 5, he says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Came out of the land of Egypt, some of those who were saved, they didn't make it. There, there were times when the earth opened up and 3,000 of them died. They, God's judgment was immediate. Their sin caused them to receive recompense for that sin. But look at verse 6. And the angels, Jude is using that same, same story. And the angels which kept not their first estate... Where do we go to find out about this? Genesis chapter 6, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and there were giants born unto them, the Nephilim. Folks, that happened. That's not a crazy man's rattling. That was a ploy that was done with purpose and intent in order to stop the of coming to earth to save you from your sins. If the human race could be condemned with demonic seed, and remember, what, did, what had God told this, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and between my seed. So Satan has a seed. And boy, were they exercising it during this time. And the angels which kept not their first estate or their first principality, but left their own habitation. The word habitation there is body. Same word that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. Same Greek word. But left their own habitation. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Uh, we're not going to take the time to do it. Revelation 9, 14 talks about that judgment, that when the 
the demons that I think came into the daughters of men are released from where they are held and that judgment is going to come come about on on earth revelation 9:14 you can you can study that verse 7 even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh so these fallen angels just like Sodom and Gomorrah the men there went after strange flesh not in fatality so did these fallen angels went after strange flesh are set forth for an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire and Peter and Jude both are making sure people understand the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of what had been laid before and what was expected. So you, you look at 2 Peter, you look at Jude, and it, uh, Jude talks about the sin of, of, of Balaam. Look at verse 11 of Jude. Woe to them, talking about, uh, and again, the... Michael fighting with, with the devil over the body of Moses and how you don't just tell a dignitary, you don't tell just a principal, uh, hey, I'm in charge here, go away. Michael couldn't even do that. How Michael won the day against Satan for the body of Moses was to say, the Lord rebuke you. I guarantee you, you don't say Satan rebuke you. You don't have the power or the authority. But in the name of Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all, they shudder. They shudder. But look at verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. The way of Cain? What, what was Cain's sin? I mean, he killed his brother. That was a big sin, right? That was a no-no. You don't do that. But what was his, what, called, what brought them to that point? Is that Cain brought his own reward for sacrifice. Cain brought the best fruits and the best vegetables and the best that this cursed earth could produce. And he laid them and they were not because God had commanded what was to be brought, and that was a blood sacrifice. Abel brought a blood sacrifice. His own religious way, his own religious purpose. Well, I'll do it my way. Well, his way was not accepted to God. And that's what Jude is telling them. We've already talked about Balaam. Kor Go to number 16. Kor talks about, Korah says, Moses, who gives you the right to tell us what to do? We're smart. We're spiritual. We're going to tell ourselves what to do. And God has said, Moses, you're the leader. See, they, he was assuming responsibility. He was assuming authority that he had no business. But real quick. Back to 2 Peter. 
2 Peter chapter 3. I really want to get through this real quick. Verse 1, the soul that I now write in pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets in the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, Jude talks about scoffers, we're not going to take the time to get into that, scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that the word of God, the he- for by the word of God the heavens of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly man. But beloved, be not, because you're wondering, where is the Lord? How come he's not here? It, what, what happened to the tribulation? Why, why, keep in mind, Paul was, he was already starting to preach grace of God. What's going on here? And that was a legitimate question. What's going on? And Peter says, I don't want you to be ignorant. For the day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. It has nothing to do with creation. It has everything to do with God's outside of eternity. God is not ruled by day and night and years and minutes and seconds. But the day of the Lord will come. That's what they were expecting. Where is it? How come it hasn't happened? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation or manner of life and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. This is at the end of the millennial kingdom when this is going to take place. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you be found of him in peace and without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Why is the Lord tarrying? Why is the Lord not coming? Why is the Lord, what's he doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's being long-suffering. That's what Peter had told him. He's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance, Jew and Gentile. Why hasn't the Lord come? It's because there are people who need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And God was not willing that they perish, so Israel is blinded. And he says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given to him, have written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking of them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. Even Peter didn't know everything that was going on. Which is interesting because in Luke 24, verse 44, 
Luke 24, 44, the Lord had opened their understanding so that they understood the Scriptures. But now something's going on that was not opened up to them back then. That is the mystery. Real quick, and we're, let me tell you what the heart of the mystery is. When he says, as Paul, that brother Paul has told us some things that's hard for us to understand, Romans chapter 11 is a, is a phenomenal explanation of what's happened to Israel. They have been blinded temporarily. They have been set aside temporarily. Chapter 11 uh, of, of Romans, look, start with verse 25. But I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits and blindness in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's a promise. It's going to happen. And this is my covenant to them, when I shall take away their sins, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. What God has told Israel, what God has promised to the fathers, He is going to do. Verse 30, here we go. This was, this, this was not understood. This was part of the mystery. As a matter of fact, I think this is at the heart of the mystery. For as you, he's talking to the Gentiles here, for as you in times past have not believed God, now have, a turn, have obtained mercy through their unbelief. unbelief. Israel's unbelief. Their disobedience. Their rejection of him as Messiah. You've mercy because of their unbelief. It's not what God's Word says. Even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy, talking about Israel, they also may obtain mercy. Look at verse 32. Folks, if this doesn't put you on shouting ground, Gentiles, and you're all Gentiles, for God hath concluded them all in unbelief that He might have mercy upon all mercy upon all oh and that's what paul first 33 he stops when he considers that oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out who knows the mind of god we find in his word that he's gracious He's merciful, and it's God's will that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And in order to make that happen, He has included everybody, Jew and Gentile, in unbelief, not so that He can rain down judgment, but by faith you made an heir of God, joint heir of Christ. What a plan of salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we thank you for that great and marvelous plan of salvation. Fathers, we study first and second Peter and we see that, that you are the great shepherd. You are the bishop of our souls. Father, when we read that you are Lord of all, Father, we acknowledge that. 
when we study Jude, we find that you are preserver. And that without you, we can do absolutely nothing. Without you, we're helpless, we're hopeless. Father, we come before you rejoicing that it's your will that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Father, we come rejoicing that it's your will that all men be saved. Father, we praise your name for that. That you look beyond faults, our many, and you look beyond our need. You met that need. Look beyond our faults. You saw our need. You met that need through the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone here, faith have never trusted you, that, Father, they'll trust you today and become that new creation that only you can make us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray and ask. Amen.